It's Wednesday, it's sunny outside. I'm reasonably refreshed from my International Workers' Day off on Monday. The bad news, Dahlia Gabriel is unwell. She won't be here this evening. The good news, James Meadway has stepped in um, to fill her boots. James, thank you for joining us this evening. No worries at all. Uh, it's quite big boots to fill, but I'll do my best with it. You do your best, James. I believe in you. I believe in you. And we're talking about the, the run-up to the local elections. Everyone's arguing about housing. Um, AI, I'm very worried about it. I've been arguing with James all day. He's not very worried about it. So you can see us have a little debate about that. Um, and some nonsense surrounding the coronation. On the eve of local elections across the country, Labour are going in heavy on housing. Um, this is Keir Starmer at PMQ's. Mr Speaker, the, the question was, how many more people this year are going to be paying more on their mortgages? And the answer that he avoided giving again, he knows these answers. He's, he's got the stats there in front of him. 930,000 people. So by the end of this year, I know they don't want to talk about it, that's why he won't answer the questions. By the end of this year, nearly 2 million homeowners, counting the cost of the Tories' economic vandalism with every mortgage payment they make. And it's not just those who already own their home that are counting the cost of Tory recklessness. The average deposit for a first-time buyer is going up to £9,000. Does he even know how long it would take an average saver to put that sort of money aside? Homeowners form the Tories' base, so you can see why Starmer's gone for this attack line. He did, in fact, though, understate the problem. Starmer said there that the average deposit for a first-time buyer has gone up to nine grand. It's gone up to nine grand. Um, but anyone who's tried to buy a house, I haven't, but I know some people who have. Well, no, a deposit is much higher than nine grand. What he meant to say is that the average deposit has gone up by nine grand. Um, he's using, I think, um, statistics from a report from planning consultancy Litchfields. They found that the housing shortfall created by the Tories scrapping of house building targets will mean a first time buyer in 2030 will need an extra £9,000 for a deposit. So changes made by the Tories this year will increase deposits by £9,000 by 2030. Um, by leading on that £9,000 figure, Starmer perhaps disguised how difficult it actually is for someone to buy a house right now. This graph from money.co.uk shows how much you'll need as a deposit if you're a first-time buyer across all regions of the UK. If you're anywhere outside of the south of England, you'll need between 27 and 37,000 pounds. If you're in the southeast, it goes up to 60,000 pounds. And if you're in London, well, you'd better have 115,000 pounds knocking about. The average first-time buyer deposit in the UK is, wait for it, 61,000 pounds. Um, but it's not just a hefty deposit you'll need to get your hands on. You'll also, if you want to home, own a home, sorry, need a pretty good salary too. Outside of the south of England, you'll need a mortgage for between 120 and 165,000 pounds. If you're lucky enough to find a mortgage provider who'll lend you five times your salary, you'll need to make between 24 and 33,000 a year. Might sound doable. Um, if you're in the south east, the average mortgage is 255,000 pounds, meaning you need a salary of 51 pounds so are getting a lot more difficult now. And then in London, the average first-time buyer, and they'll need a mortgage of £360,000. So you'll need to be making £72,000 a year. 
So that is out of reach for most people. Um, of course, Sunak's scrapping of house building targets is only going to make those figures worse. Um, and they are, we should say, pretty stark figures, which does beg the question, why did Starmer go for the somewhat confusing nine grand figure which he fluffed? It was probably to get him this soundbite. Mr Speaker, every week, whatever the topic, he stands there and pretends everything is fine across the country. And every week he does so, he reinforces just how out of touch he is. £9,000, ha ha ha, £9,000 would take four years. They think it's funny that four years, four years for the average saver to save £9,000. Or, or, or to put it a different way in terms the Prime Minister will understand, roughly the annual bill to heat his swimming pool. <laughs> so that was the comparison he wanted to make. The Tory scrapping house building targets, according to this consultancy company, has raised the amount that we will need a deposit to buy a house by nine grand. And he's saying nine grand is around the cost um, it takes for Rishi Sunak to heat his swimming pool for a year. So Labour trying to say, one, you know, the Tories are, are not good for your pocket and two, they're completely out of touch. Um, that then was um, campaigning for local elections. But what about the actual policy um, of the parties? Well, on Labour, the Telegraph has this, they write. The party has set a goal of achieving 70% home ownership. It is promising a package of reforms to the planning system to get more houses built, including giving first-time buyers first dibs on new houses in their area and stopping foreign buyers buying up swathes of new housing developments. The party has pledged a comprehensive mortgage guarantee scheme for first-time buyers who can afford a mortgage but have not got a large deposit. Furthermore, it has vowed to take on speculators who hold tracts of land with no intention of developing it, but with the explicit aim of later selling it on for a profit. So land bankers, of course, um, to my ears, that was a lot of focus on home ownership, but um, Labour have also talked a, a reasonably decent talk on social housing. And in London, Sadiq Khan has a good story to tell. Last year, work began on 10,000 new council homes in the capital. And visiting a housing development in North London today, the mayor said this, there's no quick fix to London's current housing crisis, but I'm hugely proud at the progress we're making delivering a new era in council home building in the capital. We've hit our ambitious target early with more than 23,000 city hall funded council homes started since 2018. This is the highest number since the 1970s and a key part of my plans to build a better, fairer London for everyone. And so that was 10,000 homes started in the capital last year. That compares to, in the whole of the rest of England, 4,325 council homes being started. Right, So you've got double the amount of council homes being started in London compared to the rest of England combined. Um, so it looks pretty bad for everywhere else pretty decent for London. Of course, I would like to be seeing um, more than that built, um, but there is a limit to the to the resources to which Sadiq Khan can access. Um, James, um, the parties are battling out on housing, or I should say more, more, more realistically, Labour attacking the Tories on housing because the Tories really don't have much of a story to tell when it comes to this. Um, what do you make of this issue? How much do you rate Labour's offer here? 
Well, it's a bit sort of fairly typically, it's a bit underpowered, isn't it? The the it's fine to sort of stick a target out there and say we want a seventy percent home ownership. I mean, fine, whatever. But it's like, how are you going to get there? And what you don't see in this is a, a plan on how to get there. Uh, the bit that's quite unusual. I mean, Sadiq Khan sort of running against it. So there's a few other Labour councils that, that are uh, starting to think along these lines as well. There are new council housing schemes appearing around the country. Like building has picked up from an extremely low point, reached I think under the last. Uh, new Labour government back in the 2000s. Um, but unless you've got a plan from how you get here to this point in the future, which is 70% ownership, it's just, you know, you're just kind of offering these things and doing nothing about it. The big thing that they were pushing earlier in the week was um, a mortgage guarantee scheme. Uh, details, again, seem to be a little bit uh, sketchy around this, but that doesn't by itself start to do things like, for instance, addressing the fact that to buy a house, as you've pointed out, it is so phenomenally expensive that there's not many people coming into this. If they're younger uh, households in particular, it will actually have that sort of money able to go out and buy a house. So you can have a guarantee for the mortgage. You can potentially try and use this to reduce the cost of the mortgage looking into the future. It may or may not do very much about the actual cost of the house and the kind of deposit you need to get in the first place. The evidence from across the world of these sort of schemes, particularly in similar uh, housing markets, which are like ours, which is a bit sort of financialized, like the you know the Dutch housing market uh, is the example that springs to mind, is that having a kind of state-backed mortgage guarantee scheme is not enough by itself to actually encourage home ownership. And if they start doing something you know, more attractive around like, oh, we're going to control rents, that might be a way, if you wanted to buy a house, that plausibly, if you're not spending all your money on rents, maybe that'll be getting you further up there. Maybe if we had a much higher minimum wage, particularly for younger people, that would have a significant impact. There are other things that they would need to do to get there, and they're not doing them. The kind of proposals that Labour had in 2019, very well developed, very comprehensive uh, package of proposals called Land for the Many, which was published and duly savaged, and you can see the, the political problems that Labour's now backing away from on this, savaged in the Daily Mail and other such places, but really good radical schemes to think about how you start to get into the underlying problem in this country, which is the ownership of land in particular, not so much the houses that are being built, but the fact of who owns the land that these things are built on. So things like support for community land trusts, for the idea that you would have forms of public ownership of land, perhaps council ownership of land, which would allow more house buildings to take place. Much more thoroughgoing than saying we're going to have a, a state-backed mortgage lender, a vague target, and and try and sort of encourage councils around the country to to allow more to be built. It's it's not. It doesn't add up to what they say they want to do. I mean, personally, I think the whole targeting what tenure people will live in is stupid, essentially, because they're saying they want seventy percent homeowners. They've also said they want social housing to be the second largest tenure. Um, but if you have home ownership as seventy percent. Then you've got the second largest tenure as social housing, which would be at least 16%, or I suppose at least 15.1%. But social housing is currently 17%. So they could they could fulfill their guarantee on social housing by actually selling off social housing. So it just seems like a silly way to do things. I think what you want to say is this is the way that we're going to give secure housing to all, whether or not you own your home or you're a private renter or you're a social renter. Um, I suppose the policy people that are interested in, like that do have some hope about the Labour Party, James, um, they seem to think that, you know, Labour will get more houses built and that, you know, to their credit, you know, they won't, they won't have backbenchers who will block everything such as the Tory party. Do you have any faith there? 
Well, look, it's, it's in principle, it should happen. It's just that to, to actually get house building moving in Britain. And, and by the way, it's not, you know, you've got to be careful about this. It's not build more houses, therefore solve housing problem. It's not, the, you know, the thing is more complex than that, not least around the financialization of housing and, and how people uh, have to take on these massive debts for very, very expensive houses. It's like there's a series of things that have to happen there. Um, some of the, like, the whispers around, oh, well, Labour's keen on new towns being constructed elsewhere in the country. That, that perhaps there's more you know, interesting and radical reforms to the planning system uh, that, that, that they, they might be interested in. Well, again, it's just not, the, the detail isn't really there as far as I can tell. And I don't think other people have been able to see it that would get you to the point where this is going to make a serious difference to people's lives on, on something where there is this chronic institutional like really systemic failure on on houses and housing in this country from top to bottom in every possible way. You know, the houses we have are old, they're cold, they're poorly ventilated, they're expensive to run. There's not enough of them in the places where you need to have them. And there's, you, know, you can argue, there's too many in some of the places where people don't want to be. There's just on every single level, this is a problem. And of course, people do want to own their own home. Uh, as, as, you know, the polling, and this is extremely consistent, regardless what age people are, that is itself a reflection of a wider issue where because the welfare state isn't working as well as it should, because the pension system isn't working as well as it should, the house becomes your form of security that you have to cling on to. So, of course, you try and uh, own the thing. We didn't used to live in a country like this. You have to go back a few generations, but it didn't used to be like this. You have to have much more uh, council housing, uh, and that's what people would live in, and that would be a secure, affordable, decent place to live. We don't have that anymore. We have this kind of financialized, neoliberal mess that generations have been pushed into now. And what Labour is saying now, compared to what it was saying under previous leadership, isn't really going to address that. Housing, very old problem, I suppose, since the beginning of <laughs> since the beginning of time, what a ridiculous thing to say. Anyway, I'm trying to segue to a segment on AI, so I'm just going to go ahead with it. Right. The artificial intelligence takeoff is here. Chat GPT can finish your homework or pass a law exam. AI-generated music means you can get Kanye West to cover the plain white tees or create a Drake tune from scratch. I do recommend you look that one up. And now, artificial intelligence can even make beer adverts like this one. Um, now, the version I've seen of this going around, um, I think, has Smash Mouth in the background. We can't play the music for, for the purposes of YouTube. But as you can see here, none of these people are real. Um, this advert was completely generated by AI, I presume by looking at other beer adverts and basically following all the tropes of those. As you can tell, I mean, if you've been looking at AI videos on the internet, the big problem they have is with, with hands. And clearly here, a big problem they have is from drinking. So AI hasn't quite worked out yet which side of the bottle um, a person would drink from. But you can see, um, you know, work still to be done, but that's a lot of progress from where we were um, a year ago. Um, the speed of AI development has some influential people incredibly concerned, though. Um, this was a headline in the New York Times this week. The godfather of AI leaves Google and warns of danger ahead. For half a century, Jeffrey Hinton nurtured the technology at the heart of chatbots like ChatGPT. Now he worries it will cause serious harm. Um, Jeffrey Hinton was a computer scientist at the University of Toronto who first developed the neural network model of artificial intelligence. Neural networks enable computers to process data in a way that is inspired by the human brain. It's one type of machine learning and forms the backbone of AI models like ChatGPT. So that's why everyone is very interested um, in this guy. Um, the MIT spoke to him about the concerns that led to him leaving Google, which he did only very recently. So the MIT write this, 
As companies improve their AI systems, he believes they become increasingly dangerous. Quote, look at how it was five years ago and how it is now, he said of AI technology. Take the difference and propagate it forwards. That's scary. Until last year, he said Google acted as a proper steward for the technology, careful not to release something that might cause harm. But now that Microsoft has augmented its Bing search engine with a chatbot challenging Google's core business, Google is racing to deploy the same kind of technology. The tech giants are locked in a competition that might be impossible to stop, Dr. Hinton said. The article goes on to say, his immediate concern is that the internet will be flooded with false photos, videos, and text, and the average person will not be able to know what is true anymore. Down the road, he is worried that future versions of the technology pose a threat to humanity because they often learn unexpected behavior from the vast amounts of data they analyze. This becomes an issue, he said, as individuals and companies allow AI systems not only to generate their own computer code, but actually run that code on their own. And he fears a day when truly autonomous weapons, those killer robots, become reality. So all very concerning stuff. Um, one more quote from him. He said, the idea that this stuff could actually get smarter than people, a few people believed that, but most people thought it was way off. And I thought it was way off. I thought it was 30 to 50 years or even longer away. Obviously, I no longer think that. So this is a guy who knows his stuff. Very, very concerned. Um, as well as speaking to the MYT since leaving Google, he's spoken to CNN. He was asked what kind of regulation might be needed to avoid the risks he's warning of. I'm not an expert on how to do regulation. I'm just a scientist who suddenly realized that these things are getting smarter than us. Um, and I want to sort of blow the whistle and say we should worry seriously about how we stop these things getting control over us. Um, and it's going to be very hard. And I don't have the solutions. I wish I did. Does there need to be a, a meeting of, of all of the tech groups and governments working on this, uh, Google, China, whatever, and some sort of set of rules of the road? I mean, how do we even protect against bad actors or, or rogue nations harnessing AI? So for some things, it's very hard, like them using AI for manipulating electorates or for fighting wars with robot soldiers. But for the existential threat of AI taking over, we're all in the same boat. It's bad for all of us. And so we might be able to get China and the US to agree on things like that. It's like nuclear weapons. If there's a nuclear war, we all lose. And it's the same if these things take over. So since we're all in the same boat, we should be able to get agreement between China and the US on things like that. Do you think that tech companies will be the solution? Or are they so invested in this financially and also, let's be frank, in terms of power, uh, that they're not going to be part of the solution here. I think the tech companies are the people most likely to be able to see how to keep this stuff under control. We can talk about his analysis that the tech companies are going to be the people most likely to keep this under control in a moment. First of all, though, James, I know we've, um, we've been speaking today about this. We disagree on whether AI might pose an existential threat. I'm quite persuaded that it's something we should be at least concerned about, especially when you've got people such as Jeffrey Hinton leaving his job so he can talk about it. Um, you, you're, as far as I understand it, more of the perspective that this is just science fiction. It's, it's not a real possibility that we need to take seriously that the AI could end up, well, I think taking control is a weird way of putting it, but could end up posing existential threats to humanity, let's say. There's a list of things of varying degrees of things to be uh, very concerned about. What are particularly 
I think there's kind of an argument, and it's the one that other people who work in AI, uh, Meredith Whitaker is, is one of the founders of Google's uh, open research unit back in the day. There's, there's various people around who say similar things about the risks involved here, but they don't pick up on some of the things that uh, Jeffrey Hinton was talking about, which is, or rather the media has really picked up on, which is like this very distant thing about existential risk. The risks right now, and perhaps this is what he might mean by, you know, AI taking over and putting us under control and all that sort of thing. The risks right now are things like algorithmic discrimination that you build in forms of racism and sexism into the new technologies that you have. The risk right now is that you actually have these very, very large companies uh, like Google or Microsoft or Facebook or Amazon or whoever that are developing uh, and implementing these systems and using them to reinforce their market power, uh, their control over the technologies that we use, because this is how you make uh, money out of this. I mean, do bear in mind the AI technology we have today. I mean, AI is a bit of a PR term really in these sort of uh, circumstances. The AI technology we have today is an extension of what these companies are already doing. It is based on the massive collection of as much data as possible and then the very fast processing of that data and the working out of correlations from that data and then you know you can set up a, a model that looks like it can produce actually i think quite a funny video a spoof of a, a, a beer advert or have a nice conversation with on chat gpt or whatever and these things are impressive to us but it's a long way from really thinking about intelligence it's an extension of the kinds of technologies that we've all got used to with the internet and with this sort of ubiquitous web and the fact we've all got smartphones that can do all these things over a long period of time. Now, that technology as applied will reinforce those the problems we have with that technology of very large corporate capture, corporate control, not necessarily well regulated, all sorts of then political influences that, that, that start to come in that, that Jeffrey Hinton actually uh, hinted at there. That, I think, is where the real problem is. And it's also, I think, where there's a degree that sometimes with people talking about what's happening with AI, they talk about it as a technology completely separate from what is happening in the rest of the world, from how the economy is organized, how society is organized, that floats, floats free, uh, and then one day it might come up with a supercomputer that will kill us all for its own purposes. And you saw that, I think, with Jeffrey Hinton saying, well, actually, perhaps the big tech companies are part of the solution here. Well, yeah, I think we need to be a bit more strict about this. And I was very interested to see, just a few hours ago, Lena Khan, who is the U.S. chair of the Federal Trade Commission, the watchdog in the U.S. that's supposed to keep an eye on things like big tech companies and to preserve competition and this sort of thing. Lena Khan, one of the more impressive people in the Biden administration, actually been quite activist about taking on some of these companies, coming out with a big list of what the administration would like to do, what she would like to see done on some of the more day-to-day, -day, immediate, this is happening right now concerns with artificial intelligence, like discrimination, like the fact that, you know, it's now so easy to generate fraudulent emails or to do deep fakes or to do various other things that, 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 you know, can be used to defraud people, essentially, that you have these technologies under the control of very large corporations. And she cites directly the experience of the last you know, nearly 20 years now of big data and how it's changed society and how we've suffered from the ways in which that wasn't regulated and how it's been applied to us. So that, I think, was a more promising way, a more useful way to think about some of the issues here, because it starts to get into the real problem, which is not so much the technology itself, but the relationship with that technology with capitalist structures that we all have to live with anyway. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I agree with lots of that in terms of those should all be concerns. I suppose I think where I think what Jeffrey Hinton is saying is quite specific and very different to other technologies, which I think, you know, many of the arguments you've made could be said about many a technology because it's about how people use them. There's something different about AI, which is that it is 
self-improving. It can act recursively. So the difference between how AI deals with data and how, say, Facebook deals with data, let's say, is that you are having uh, a model, these neural networks, which Jeffrey Hinton created, which are being fed, fed loads and loads and loads and loads of data. And it's not then that they pump out an algorithm that the you know, the, the, the computer scientist understands is that they can complete tasks without anyone understanding what's gone on. So it's, it's, it's a real black box. So say that's how- been a, That's been a problem. No, that's been a problem with big data analysis for a long period of time. The issue of intractability, that because the data sets are so big and because your computer is so fast at analyzing them, it's not really possible to know how it draws a connection from one place uh, to another. And, and you get versions of this all the time, that that the the very targeted advertising that, that Facebook can, for example, will try and sell companies, which will start to pick out the interconnections between different sets of people behaving in different ways. Now, it's not easy to see what those connections might be why somebody with these particular characteristics also is somebody who wants to shop in this particular way. These things are not tractable, right? You can't actually sit down and work out from point A to point B. But what you've got with what we're calling artificial intelligence is an extension of that principle. And that starts to sound like that, yes, you can start to create, okay, you can create a kind of theoretical possibility in the future where we have a, such a fast, powerful version of this machine, perhaps writing or, if you like, a coding another machine that can be even faster and more powerful than that. But because the underlying technology stays the same, it's kind of the economics you run into that's the problem here. There's a, there are limits, and we are approaching some of those limits to how the current technology we have for building silicon chips and building blocks, the physical building blocks of this, uh, how much improvement we can expect to get out of these things over the next few years. Jeffrey Moore, founder of Intel, who died probably a couple of weeks ago, famous for Moore's Law, the idea that you know, the number of transistors on the chip will double every year or so. So you get these huge improvements, like 50 years. That's starting to run out. The technologies are running into barriers here. Very interesting reports in the specialist press not so much in the wider media, uh, in the information, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, that AI startups were starting to be rationed by providers of web services, web servers, because they were all trying to use so much computing power uh, that the, they were having to put limits on how much is available if you go to Amazon Web Services to AI companies. Similar problems with the supply of the GPUs that are used to do the data analysis uh, for these very, very large data collection uh, data collection processes that machine learning uh, relies on. All of these things are the kind of resource constraints that are hitting problems with the energy consumption now of data servers. If we have existing technologies and something that's like that is what we're going to get a real supercomputer out of, this super intelligent thing. It's going to require huge resource use. If it's going to require huge resource use, there are now already appearing competitions for scarce resources over this. So that's a limit, I think, on what is plausible under the kind of current organization and society that we have. But isn't the problem here that we don't know what that limit is, right? And, and, and so I'm, I'm not an expert on the computing power it takes to develop generative AI. But I presume that Jeffrey Hinton is, is, is more of an expert than either you or I. And it seems that he has been shocked at the speed at which AI has, has been able to develop capacities that we thought would be a long way off. And we've been able to do that, obviously, within the resource constraints that we currently have. Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it. So it, it doesn't seem to me that we're going to be able to very well predict, oh, we will need X resources to create super intelligence. Because also what you're getting is these, you know, the, these programs which are coding other programs or coding other machines. And it, it, we don't know how efficient they're going to be when it comes to energy consumption. So I, I, I take your point that it might be that we hit a resource limit before 
these AIs are able to get smarter than us. We're, we should we're be clear already why, hitting why, a resource limit. You what, sorry? We're already hitting resource limits and these well, things. Well, like there's a semiconductor shortage. There's the shortage yeah, of service. There's, there's a difference there's between there being shortages on. and hitting limits, right? Because clearly what, what Jeffrey Hinton is saying and where he's coming from and what I find very persuasive is he's saying we've come a lot further in a much shorter space of time than we imagined. And it could be the case that we go much further in a much shorter space of time than we imagined again. That's what he's saying. Like, look, look how far we've come in three years. Imagine how far we'll go in a year. Obviously, these things, because of the nature of a smart machine coding a smart machine coding a smart machine, there could be a sort of exponential speed up here because you're getting smart things coding smart things, recursive in that sense. And so that's why I, I, I don't really have any confidence that, oh, don't worry, the, before it gets super intelligent and intelligent enough to outsmart us. And again, we should be clear, this isn't, it's, it's not that the bot becomes evil. The, the argument is about misalignment. So you might ask a, the classic example is a paperclip. So you ask a, a machine to make as many paperclips as possible. It decides that it's going to try and melt down everything in existence so it can make paperclips. And it realizes that we're not going to be happy with that. So it preempts us turning off the machine by killing us all, right? So it's, it's, it might sound far-fetched, but that's the idea of misalignment theory, right? So th before we get to that period where they can outsmart us, and then it's difficult to stop them because they're smarter than us. I don't see, I have no confidence we'll hit the resource constraint first. Neither does this guy. Um, who to me, I can't see what his ulterior motive would be to be sounding this alarm. And again, I suppose I'd go back to your point about, I, I don't think it's just the media picking up on this existential thing because it is, people have been working in this who've been talking about this for years, actually. It's only now the media have been picking it up. And it seems to me it's people high up in these companies that have been more concerned about this than um, the political class and, and mainstream media. There, there is, you can create, you can start from where we are now and sort of create a world. You've just done it where everything's gone bad because the computer has, has, has you know, done something unexpected that, that is bad for the rest of us. Now, there are versions of this already happening. You remember uh, just a few years ago when there was an attempt to compensate for the fact that schools were locked down by using an algorithm to generate the A-level and GCSE results that the students were supposed to have got. And it turned out this was just biased and terrible and was giving people results that were better if you happened to go to a private school for no other reason than you were a private school, right? This is what was coming out of the thing. It's a, it's a small version of what is already happening. And this is where the issue of like, oh, but what if this terrible thing happens in the future? It's a bit, you get like this with climate change. It's like, oh, what if this terrible thing happens in the future? It is already happening. These terrible things are already happening. We should deal with the terrible things that are already happening. And in dealing with those terrible things, in starting to say, well, how can we put under some sort of public supervision and control the development of these particular data techniques and these machine learning techniques that is not necessarily? And, and I think when George has said, said this, he's kind of right. It's the process of competition that Google is scared of Microsoft, so they're having to charge at this and put loads and loads of money and time and effort and resources into it. That process of competition driving this in a chaotic way, what can we do that starts to put some public control, some democratic accountability, as much supervision as we can, have a serious uh, society-wide conversation about how we start to use these things and potentially use them for all sorts of really good, exciting purposes. The invention of new drugs, uh, you know, the invention of far more efficient ways to use the resources we have is something that AI could be and big data could be particularly good at. That we can do that if we start to get in our heads that we need to challenge the structures that are investing in and applying and using these new technologies. And that means having to, at the very least, think about regulation now, not because of the existential risk, which you know, I can write a kind of science fiction story about how this might happen in the future. I've tried to give you a, a, a sort of, if you like, economist version of why this is quite implausible given the technologies that we have. But what we really have to deal with is that issue of corporate power 
And the fact you have decisions over these things made by a really quite a limited number of institutions globally with very limited real public control and oversight. And if we don't start to deal with this, then the kind of problems we saw with the development of things like Facebook and all the other big uh, tech, big data companies from the early 2000s onwards, they will reproduce themselves in a much more dramatic and unpleasant fa fashion through machine learning and the application of machine learning. That to me seems like something to really focus on now and potentially then think about existing existential risks rather than the immediate existential risk, oh my God, we'll have a computer, it'll run off and kill us all, right? The, the problem is capitalism. The problem isn't the computer directly. Four hours where we're all discussing as a nation how to turn off the evil supercomputer. I will have clipped up um, you talking on this episode of Tisky Sour and be sharing it on Twitter with glee. The coronation of King Charles III is just days away. Despite being billed as a, quote, slimmed down event, all that pomp and splendour is set to cost the taxpayer an estimated £250 million. Now, in real terms, that's 10 times as much as the 1953 coronation of Elizabeth II. So I'm not sure what it's slimmed down in comparison to. Um, the government doesn't want anyone disrupting it. Um, Republic is a political organisation campaigning to replace the monarchy. They've recently protested the king at various visits around the country, like this one at Westminster Abbey, using the hashtag NotMyKing. The group say their membership has grown by a thousand every week. Um, I mean, there's only a week left, so it's not going to be that much longer to keep growing the organization, but there we are, um, still progress. And Republic have planned legal demonstrations along the coronation route on Saturday, including at the statue of Charles I in Trafalgar Square, ominous. Um, his 1649 beheading led to a short-lived Republic in Britain. I'm not sure if that's what they want to see again. Um, if it were, that would make the next point reasonable, but I don't think it is, um, because they now have received an official warning letter from the Home Office citing the new public order bill. That bill was rushed into law this week, and it clamps down on the right to protest. The Guardian reports this. Using tactics described by lawyers as intimidatory, the Home Office's Police Powers Unit wrote to the campaign group Republic, saying new powers had been brought forward to prevent disruption at major sporting and cultural events. I would be grateful if you could publicise and forward this letter to your members who are likely to be affected by these legislative changes, says the Home Office letter, which lists the creation of a number of new criminal offences under the government's much-criticised Public Order Bill. The Public Order Bill means that protesters who block roads, airports and railways could face 12 months behind bars. A person locking onto others' objects or buildings could also go to prison for six months and face an unlimited fine. And the police now have the power to stop and search protesters if they merely suspect they're planning to cause disruption. So perhaps if they have a, a, a poster that says, not my king, with a hashtag. Um, other groups, including Extinction Rebellion, are also reported to have received the letter. Tom Tugendhat is Minister of State for Security on Radio 4's Today programme. He gave a pretty interesting take on the coronation's security operation. This is a major moment for the United Kingdom. It's a major moment to showcase not just our capabilities in science and technology and arts in any number of different ways, but it's also a major moment for us to showcase our liberty and our democracy. And that's what this security arrangement is doing. What we're doing is we're empowering people to come together freely and openly. And we're demonstrating that security can be a liberator in a democracy, not like in authoritarian states where it's a controller. 
showcasing our liberty is an interesting phrase. This at a time when protesters who want to say, not in our name, not our monarch, not our leader, have been sent a letter by the police, that's the uh, Republican organisation called Republic, have been sent a letter by the police warning them that the government has sped through new laws in order to limit their ability to protest. So to put it simply, do they have the liberty to erect a banner this weekend saying, not my king? They have the liberty that anybody in the United Kingdom has to protest. What they don't have the liberty to do is to disrupt others. And that's where we're drawing, making a difference. Because, you know, you saw, Nick, very clearly uh, ambulances in London only a few months ago unable to take patients to hospital because people were blocking roads. You've seen people, quite rightly, getting extremely frustrated when they're unable to get to work or get to school in the morning because people, for one pressure group or another, have decided to put an obstacle in their road, sit down in their road. You know, this is why we are making this change to the law. And this is why the important uh, changes we've made to the Public Order Act have come, th- have gone through. What do you, you mean know- by disruption, though? OK, holding a banner, that's OK, you say. Anywhere? Can they do that? Can they try to get onto the route of the parade, the procession, and to walk there? What is it they can't do? Nick, I'm not going to go through the details of what you can and can't do for fear of encouraging people to find loopholes in it for very obvious reasons. Um I suppose, is that fair enough, that idea that if he were to state exactly what one is allowed to do, people would do it? I don't know. I feel like kind of that's probably how the law should work, which is you say these would be the legal things to do and these would not, not it's not to just sort of hope people guess um, which one. It seems a sort of somewhat strange thing for a legislator to say. I want to keep people on their toes. I'm not going to tell people what it's legal and not legal to do. Um, so that's a, a new anti-protest law, threatening letters from the state and 30,000 police on the streets for the event. Seems pretty significant. Um, not enough for everyone though. Victoria Hervey is, a, or Harvey, however one says it, um, probably with a very posh accent. Victoria Hervey is a minor aristocrat, only a minor one. And on GB News, she had this suggestion for Suella Braverman. I'm all for protesting and all of that. But if I was in charge of this coronation, I would arrest all the heads of all all of those kind of people that would be protesting. I would put them all in jail, like pre-coronation and then release them after. Because it's even if they've not done anything criminal. It, no, even if, but if they have any record of doing anything. Mm. So all those no, not stop, stop oil, all of that lot, just put them in jail. I, mean, I have to say, I got distracted by the person to her left who was dressed as a Disney princess for some reason. Uh, but Victoria Harvey or Hervey, um, she thinks everyone should be <laughs> Republicans should be put in jail before the coronation and released afterwards. Uh, James Meadway um, is. You know, how, how reasonable is her claim? How worried should we be about what Tom Tugendhat said? Uh, I mean, what, what's the polling on this? I mean, look, there's a lot of support for the monarchy, right? I think it's sort of 70% support in the general population. That does kind of suggest there's a good 25-30% of the population you might want to think about locking up, which on just simple practical grounds, this isn't going to happen. There aren't enough barges to float in the Thames estuary to to do this sort of thing. But the, the more worrying bit is the, the, the kind of acceptable authoritarianism on this. Like, well, of course, you, you know, you're, you're allowed to protest, says Tom Tugendhat, as long as it sort of doesn't really do anything. I mean, that's that's the kind of where this thing lands. Oh, you can hold a banner. That's just sort of harmless eccentricity. The point in which your protest moves into actually causing any form of inconvenience to anybody is the point at which this starts to become a protest you don't want, even though kind of by its nature, any effective protest is going to cause at least a little bit of nuisance or disruption of some form. It depends how much it's going to be, but it's going to be at least something. You're going to have to change 
change things somewhere. You're going to have to cause some disruption. As soon as you start saying, oh, you can do it without disruption, you're not really talking about doing a protest. You're talking about doing a, a kind of eccentric art exhibition of some sort. It's not. It's just not the same thing. Uh, and then you get this sort of reinforcement of it from the likes of, lo and behold, GB News, where it's like this little bit, actually quite a lot, that the Tory minister has done is then taken and run with by, you know, sort of random talking heads on on uh, right wing TV channels and actually putting herself to the right of Dan Wooten there, which is quite, uh, quite something. So this is it's, it's it's a nasty, slippery slope. And it, you can see this kind of slide towards versions of increasing restrictions and what you are allowed to do, what you can do to protest exactly as conditions have visibly and obviously got worse for very large numbers of people over the last few years. The cost of living crisis, the the, the failure of our uh, sorted public services, including, by the way, the ambulance service, not because people are on strike or people are blocking streets, but because it's been desperately and chronically underfunded for a, a decade or more by this point. So that's what's happened. And that's at the same time, the response from government isn't to say, this is how we will solve these problems. It is to say, if you in any serious sense want to raise some of these problems, including the fact that we have for reasons basically unknown, but here we are, we still have a monarchy. It is very expensive. We pay a lot of money for this. This is not a slim down monarchy in any uh, reasonable sense. And you want to protest about that in a way that is meaningful at the point where it will mean something. You're not allowed to do that because we all have to say hip, hip, hooray and pretend everything is all sunny and wonderful out here in, in King Charles's Britain. It's just a sort of nasty uh, authoritarian swing. And it's kind of given this sort of happy face gloss by people like Tom Tugendhat. Of course, we want protesters. It's quite all right to protest. You can hold your mad banner if you want. Just don't actually do anything that will make a difference. Sticking on this theme, but only because we have a great clip of my colleague to show you. Navarra Media's royal correspondent Ash Sarkar has been on the BBC talking about the coronation and she didn't hold back. But when it comes to this generation in particular, young people are interested in the values of fairness and in the values of representation. Whatever way you slice it, the monarchy is neither a fair nor a representative institution. And this is where I've got to disagree with you, Rosie, just a little bit. There have been attempts by the royal family to strip themselves of some of the mystery, invite the media in and show the public what they really do. And what they've revealed themselves to be is a cartel of some very weird people. And I think that the more that social media, 24-hour news, tabloid press intrusion gets us to see who they are, who they are as individuals, which is people who have been made, in many cases, deeply unhappy by the institution that they were born into, the less people are inclined to support the monarchy either as a political national institution or just a kind of, you know, old school celebrity that they can secretly enjoy. The more unhappy you see them being, the less you're into it. I mean, it's fascinating that you say that because I suppose you could say a traditional role is to offer a kind of escapist dream and otherness, but you're saying that dream is, is tarnished by some of the stories that the palace wouldn't like getting out. I think that there's always been a double-edged sword to the glamour and to the celebrity. If you think about the person who really pioneered celebrity for the royal family, Princess Diana, that goes hand in hand with tragedy. And I think you can see the same with the treatment of Meghan Markle. She came into the royal family as a ready-made celebrity, someone who was comfortable and familiar with what it meant to be under public scrutiny. She ended up being pushed to the point where she went, went to the United States. And for the royal family to not be able to keep the first royal of colour 
inside the tent really does fly in the face of what a lot of Generation Z and millennials value, which is diversity, inclusion, and a degree of social equality. Incredibly well put. I struggle when I show Ash clips because what is there to add? I mean, that was very, very articulately put in two minutes, especially this idea. I think that, you know, the first Royal of Colour, they failed to, not only did they fail to keep her in the household, but they ended up, you know, constantly briefing against her. And now she's become a hate figure, which, yeah, is going to be, there are some people pleased about that. Presumably, I think Dan Wharton probably thinks he's doing the royal family a behavior, uh, sorry, not a behavior, a favor by constantly railing against Meghan um, on the television. But there is going to be a younger generation of people who find this pretty grotesque. Um, when it comes to what younger people think, the royals are a little bit worried about the lack of enthusiasm from Britain's younger generations. This is a poll um, which shows that while 65-year-olds and those over 65, 79% of them want to keep the monarchy, um, it goes, enthusiasm, as you can imagine, goes down with age. And by the time we're at 18 to 24 year olds, it is at 36%. So only 36% of 18 to 24 year olds want to retain the monarchy. And actually, I suppose the thing that I found more surprising about this is that this is a significant change from 10 years ago. So just 10 years ago, 70% of 18 to 24 year olds wanted to keep the monarchy. So there has been, you know, for, I, I would have thought if I'd seen this sort of just as a a slice in time, the current figures, I'd be like, of course, surely it was always like that. But no, it does seem that there has been a considerable decline in the support of young people for the monarchy. Maybe they've all been watching Navarra Media, hopefully. James, how worried are the royals? Does it matter? I mean, they still do have pretty solid support, don't they? But I suppose they should be looking in the long term. Do people get more royalist as they get older in the same way that people were supposed to get more conservative? I mean, looking at the graph, they, well, maybe. Um, the, the, I mean, support for the, the monarchy has been fairly consistently high in this country for, for a long period of time. Although I think the news this morning was that actually it's, it's around about the lowest it's been since 1983. It does wobble up and down, but you're still talking really quite a lot. Um, presumably that's driven by, once you break it open, this this incredible slide in, in the opinions of the younger uh, about the monarchy to go from a position where it's a clear majority, not just a majority, a clear majority, to about one third support in, in just a decade. Decade. It's it's really a dramatic and significant decline. It's hard to quite see what might have been some of the, the drivers here. It predates, for instance, the thing that Ash so very articulately highlighted, which is the appalling treatment uh, of Meghan Markle at the hands of the royal family and that entire kind of uh, well shit show really that, that was uh, going on there. It predates that. There's something that happens in 2015-16 that, that sets all of this off. Should the royal family be worried? Yes, presumably. Uh, like if you have a view to genuinely believing, as by the way, Prince Charles, obviously genuinely, King Charles, sorry, uh, still having entirely got used to that one um that you have a genuine belief this institution is the eternal foundation of the country and will last forever and ever into the future of course you should be worried when you find that like a third uh, only one third of uh, below uh, 25 year olds actually support that institution uh, continuing this is a, a serious concern now charles does have i think a, a reasonably coherent plan to try and rebuild uh, support for the monarchy to what he's calling and he, people around him are calling modernize uh, the monarchy. This idea, for instance, that we, it's an invitation to also declare your allegiance uh, to the king uh, on on the day of the coronation, along with, you know, traditionally it's supposed to be just the house. I say traditionally, much of this stuff was invented by the Victorians in any case. We didn't always have a royal family with the mad pageantry and, and all the rest of it. It was Queen Victoria and immediately thereafter where most of this stuff really uh, comes from. But anyway, traditionally, uh, swear allegiance um, from the House of Lords now being invited to everybody else out there. It's an attempt to sort of do what I think is the idea in 
King Charles's head. And although this is a bit of a plug, I had a very good conversation, mostly James Butler, uh, formerly of Navarra Media, talking about King Charles's very particular sets of beliefs and his attachment to, to a certain sort of actually quite reactionary thinkers out there in terms of how he might view the world and how he views ecology and nature, the, envi- uh, the economy and all of our places in all of this. But a very particular view on how you modernize the economy by saying this is a reassertion of traditional sort of ways that we're, we're going to be, that this is a traditional order, uh, the king on top, everybody else neatly slotted into place, but nonetheless, it's one that commands some popular claim. So I think that's probably where he's going to try and take the thing. But that was quite a striking uh, intervention from King Charles and the people around him to try and introduce that that sort of popular, that, that element of mass participation whilst retaining the form of the hierarchy is, is quite a distinctive thing. Let's move on from the king and queen of the nation to the king and queen of the labour right. Keir Starmer's abandonment of his tuition fees pledge has put his trustworthiness back in the spotlight and Rachel Reeves was left to answer for him on Good Morning Britain. Is it a reasonable question for people to ask whether they can believe anything that Keir Starmer does actually pledge? Because uh, the uh, scrapping the tuition fees was a pledge that he made during his campaign to be Labour leader. So people would have voted for him, perhaps on that basis. Uh, he also said he would increase income tax for the top uh, earners, top 5% of earners, uh, backtracked on that, uh, supporting common ownership of rail, mail, energy and water. Uh, you say spending billions of pounds on nationalising things just doesn't stack up. And he pledged he'd work shoulder to shoulder with unions to stand up for working people, but doesn't back the strike. And abolish universal credit, which isn't going to be due, and defend free movement as we leave the EU. All of these were his pledges. Well, let me uh, remind you of some of the other pledges. To have an employment bill to extend workers' rights. The biggest devolution uh, uh, in a generation. And on issues like public ownership, we've committed... He won't, won't, that he said and he's now... That's not how pledges work. It's not a shopping list. It's like, well, I got you some for it. It's a pledge. It's a promise. Because you broke all of these promises. Well, I kept three of them. You know, you broke, you, you broke nine promises you made to me. But look at the three that I kept. The, the, the word is pledge. As actually many of the clips going around on social media of Keir Starmer at the moment, where he's saying, of course, you know, he's asked by Andrew Neil, will you abolish tuition fees? He says, yes, it's a pledge. So I will. Um, now, apparently, um, you're allowed to drop two thirds of your pledges so long as you keep a third of them, although, you know, I doubt they'll probably make the cut. Anyway, um, let's see what happened next. Was Rachel Reeves able to, to hold firm to that line? How do we know what you are saying now is something that you will deliver on in the future, where the promises and the pledges that were made in the past well, I, is now yeah. a pick-and-mix style, me, let me of, style of, that, of manifesto? Let me, let me answer that question. Let me answer that question that you've, you've put to me. Look, circumstances change uh, in politics, and I don't think anybody would seriously say that the circumstances when Keir became leader of the Labour Party are the same as the circumstances that we face today, when we've had the global pandemic pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the Conservatives' mini-budget last year that crashed the economy, a massive cost-of-living crisis and public services on their knees. Now, yeah, look, Labour, you could be an ideologue and say, well, say regardless of the circumstances... Change, but principles well, shouldn't. No, and principles don't change, but the priorities and the policies must change according to the circumstances. Let me answer the question. Let me answer the qu- let me answer the question. Let me answer the question. 
um, the, she was able to answer the question. Um, the serious point here, she is saying that, you know, these were principles, these were policies he did genuinely back, but circumstances changed. Now, you know, the Labour Party does have a story to tell here because there were some pretty big circumstances. Um, there was COVID, there was a war in Ukraine, but it still doesn't stack up to me. This clip of Margaret Hodge is from during the leadership election. So back in well, 2019 or the beginning of 2020, and it's been recirculating online. He's triangulating like mad. Well, somebody said to me, I don't mind what he does as long as he wins, beats Rebecca Long-Bailey. And I thought, you know, Tony never did that. Tony was completely straight, completely honest. You know, it's a different way of doing your politics. So is Keir lying to get the job and will he then change? That's what this person was saying to me as a way of promoting Keir. I mean, that's sort of, I know. So that's sort of in a way you then think, ooh. Uh, James, do you think that the pledges have been dropped because circumstances changed or do you think he was lying all along, essentially? It's, it, it's sort of not that clear, like how far back here personally had a commitment to not being committed to things. But what's quite striking about it is that it's like whoever was around him didn't have, and this is a continual issue with his leadership, there doesn't seem to be any sense of things will have to happen in the future. And what you can do in the future is going to be determined by what you do today. So if you've told everybody you will do this thing in the future if you're elected and you know, this is what you're campaigning for to be prime minister and it will include getting your tuition fees, if you turn around later and say, oh, we're not actually going to do that, along with a whole stack of other stuff we're now not going to do, this will get used against you. Like it's a, I mean, there are two now fairly obvious attack lines for the Tories to go for, like just on a quite a personal basis with Keir Starmer. Uh, one of which is his record at the, uh, as DPP, which I think they're going to go crazy about in one form or another. And the other, which is this, which is like if his own party members say they can't trust him and can't trust him, why should you, the electorate of Britain, trust him? And they'll just do that. And it's so obvious that you just is what you open up yourself for. The regardless of saying, oh, well, uh, we had we had some COVID and that's why uh, that's why because there's more people who need help now. We have to do less. Uh, it's just not the most obvious argument to try and present to people. And it doesn't make a, a lot of sense to say we had this big thing we wanted to do. I mean, what it's scrap tuition fees is, is seven billion uh, pounds. Uh, it was the costing in 2019. So it'll be a bit more than that now. That's the cost. That's something you could raise from. You know, there's all sorts of things, equalizing capital gains tax uh, with income tax would cover double. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, that it's about 13, 14 billions from that tax change alone. You can do these things if you're prepared to say, well, we're going to spend more money. Maybe we'll borrow more. Maybe we'll tax some rich people uh, more than we, were, than, than we would have said previously. Fine, you can do that. That might be an ad adaptation to circumstances after COVID, economy slowing down, Tories done a lot of damage, all the story that Lay wants to tell. Well, your adaptation might then include, okay, now we're going to have to spend more and do more. It doesn't include that. There's a clear sort of line of march here into, into sort of, uh, into kind of doing very little or rather, and this may be the worst possible version of it, doing some stuff 
in a kind of technocratic, not particularly interesting to most people way. Like they'll probably be more interventionist in the economy in various different forms. Will that stack up into people's lives being made better pretty rapidly if Labour get elected? And I do think there's an if uh, attached to this. Well, it's not going to do that. The best you could say, perhaps, and this seems to have been the shift since the end of last year coming into this, is that Rishi Sunak, uh, who, you know, we now have two party leaders who say things in their leadership campaign and then do something uh, different once they're actually prime minister. Rishi Sunak, supposedly from the free market right of the Tory party, actually overseeing some increases in public spending, particularly around uh, childcare, uh, for example, straight into sort of Labour territory, exactly straight out of the Boris Johnson playbook, closing down one of the things that Labour had been trying to talk about as the thing they were going to do. So there's a kind of lack of imagination in the response to this, that because the Tories have entirely predictably, because Johnson was already doing this and had done since 2019, gone very directly into what Labour thought was its territory of public spending. And they've carried on doing that because it works for them and they can get away with it. They don't have any real response other than sort of wandering off and, and actually saying, oh, we're going to do even less than we promised initially. It, it, it's not. It doesn't function as a coherent political project. The only coherence to it is we are not Jeremy Corbyn, so we're going to bash the left a bit more. It doesn't add up to a project that you can present to uh, the wider population election, because what does it actually stand for? What is it really going to do? Because you've stripped out a load of things. And it doesn't add up to a project, I don't think, for government, because you're actually going to have to, particularly if it's a slender majority or a minority government, you're going to have to rely on a wide base of social acceptance for some of what you want to do. You're going to need the trade union supporting you. You're going to want the left supporting you in some form. Because otherwise, you're going to be in a worsening crisis in this country with a whole load of promises or half promises that you've either ditched or things you say you're half going to do, whatever the manifesto looks like. And where's your popular support uh, for doing this? Where's the base of support you can rely on to say to trade unions, we will meet your pay demands? You've not got that. So the more this goes on, the more the kind of 1990s rerun that I think some people have in their heads about what the world is like now. It's just not going to work. It's going to meet the hard reality of 2023 into 2024. And it makes that prospect of a Labour government increasingly unlikely the more it continues like this. Very, very quickly, just because we've only got a minute left. But I just wanted to ask, because you were someone who used to be a bit more positive about, say, Labour's economic programme under Starmer and Reeves than, than other people sort of pointing out the, the climate pledges or whatever. Are you now, you know, much more cynical than you were, say, 12 months ago? We're cynical. I've always been cynical. These people say these things because they, they think they have to say them. And this is just how, how the world is going. The, the world is heading catalysm in the West is heading in a more interventionist direction. Lo and behold, you get a Tory party that's more interventionist. You get a Labour party that's more interventionist. There's a nice little article in The Economist about it this week. Uh, that's how things are working. What we're starting to see with Keir Starmer is a hollowing out even of that bit they got to, where it's slightly more interventionist, a bit more spending. And I think there's real dangers. Uh, Ed Balls, for instance, has been one of the people chiseling away at that uh, climate spending pledge. One of the few things that Keir Starmer's Labour has said it will do that's quite big, quite meaty, looks serious, looks like he'll do something. It's been pushed away up by figures on the party right. So, so there's, there's a real sort of weakness and hollowness to the project at this point on the policy side that getting rid of further policies, whatever promises you used to have in the past, reinforces and means that your party project is, is weaker than it was even 12 months ago, even three months ago, frankly. James, it's been a pleasure having you on for a full show. We should do this again soon. Yes, please. It'd be nice to be back. Um, and thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.